Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Sherry Ng, who is a food writer and researcher. Sherry started food writing at Makan Sutra, which is a pioneer in celebrating Singapore street food, and she then pursued a Master of Liberal Arts in Gastronomy in the US. Upon graduation, she worked as a researcher, interned at a butcher shop, and starched at a Chinese-American restaurant. And now, she runs In Plain Words, which is a writing studio. In this chat, she shares about her book on prison cooking culture titled When Cooking Was a Crime, and reflects on her journey of pursuing her passion and chasing her curiosities. So when I was looking at your work, right, a lot of the mm-hmm. things that you are interested in and the things that you write about revolve around heritage food. So how did this love begin? Where did it start? Did it start at your childhood or did it slowly develop as you grew older? Okay, I, I, when I wrote all these stories, I wasn't looking specifically at, at heritage food. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was simply um, looking at things that, uh, like for example, we were talking about Singapore noodles, right? I happened to be overseas and then I was also thinking about what's these noodles that, that that's named after Singapore that I'm not really familiar with, uh, I, I, I was simply um, attracted to things that I, were, I, I was curious about and that's how I started like researching all the stories that I end up like writing about. Mm. Uh, so, if you, if, so if you're asking me um, how, how, how I became interested in food, then I guess it, it happened since young because um, both my parents are, are foodie. They, they cook a lot at home. Um, my mom used to bring me out. I mean, she's curious about food. And since I was young, she would bring me out to eat at Japanese restaurants. And, um, and she introduced me to sushi, you know. Um, my dad, uh, he, you know, when he was, he always tells me stories. Like when he was young, he, he, he was very curious about like things that he found tasty. And then, mm. you know, there was, this uh, Lao Tong Tong uh, Ngo Hyong store at, they used to be at the old Tong Chai Medical Center. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, he was very curious about this sauce, that dipping sauce that they, they had. So what he did was before he went to work, he went there every day. Uh, the store opened later. So he went there every day to eat at the dark rice store next door so that he can he could spy on the on the Lao Tsung Tsung store to find out what, what exactly they added. Yeah, yeah. And he found, he, he ate there for two weeks, I think, just to find out this special sauce that they added. It turned out to be the kumquat sauce. Lah. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, my parents have been, they have had a strong interest in food. I think that just... Trickled down. Uh. Yeah, trickled down. Yeah, and when I was young, I, I, I watched, you know, after school, I went home, I watched uh, Yen Ken Ko. Oh my gosh. And... <laughs> and I was too young to, 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 to try out the, the recipes that I watched, but you know, I just was very curious how these A and B add together mm-hmm. to, become, to become C's. Yeah, but later on you went to work as um, the food editor of Makan Sutra, and Makan Sutra has a very strong heritage food angle, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what kind of helped you to kind of take up that, that job? Mm-hmm. Okay, I think it's because I, I studied journalism when I was in uni at NTU. I didn't have a strong interest in food writing yet. 
you know, my impression mm. of food writing was uh, food reviews, restaurant reviews and recipes, right? Um, it was until when I came across uh, several indie magazines at the time, after I graduated. Um, uh, these magazines were writing about um, food memories um, mm. um, and uh, uh, what food tells, uh, immigrant stories, essentially. Yeah you know, um, how immigrants in the UK, for example, uh, remember where they uh, came from through uh, cooking their heritage food. Uh, so that opened my mind about what food writing is about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I began to explore and, you know, like I, I didn't really have, while I'm interested, while I was interested in food, I, I didn't have a lot of experience writing about food. So before I joined Makan Sutra, I, uh, freelanced for a few food magazines first and then uh, I found out that they were hiring and then I applied for the job and I got it uh, and you're right they they are very strong at when you say heritage food I think it's more specifically hawker food mm. Sito has like a, he has um, he knows many hawkers and I got to interview a lot of them you know like uh, because he already has a relationship with them, so it's easier when I call them up and you know uh, try to chat them up and find out more about the things that they they do. Yeah, it's easier that way. Yeah, can I ask how that process was? I mean, coming from the world of academia and reaching out to hawkers, because um, when I was writing Wet Market the Table, um, I had to do a few interviews with wet market vendors and I struggled quite a lot with that. I felt like like the moment you reach out to them or like you go to them with a notepad mm. and a pen mm. or a camera, they instantly like recoil or uh, um, they okay. don't okay. that warmly in a way. Did you get that kind of sentiment? It was easy for me, I have to say, because I grew up... Okay, I have to tell you that my a lot of my aunties and uncles were hawkers. So I grew up at coffee shops. Uh, uh, I even helped out a little bit when I was young. I grew up at JTC canteen. So that environment was mm. very familiar to me. Uh, I knew how to interact with hawkers. Mm. And also because I, uh, um, I had a lot of experience interviewing people when I was in school, uh, in Jun school. And even after that, I, I freelanced mm. quite a bit. So, um, it was a very familiar process and it helps that I speak uh, Mandarin quite well. Usually, I will not be holding my... <laughs> the trick is not to hold your pen and your camera, you know, not to make it so obvious. It's just to ask uncle and to be a little bit more sampat. Yeah, I mean, talk to them like a capo person rather than someone interviewing them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the trick because when I first wrote the book I mean like when I first started going back to the wet markets I think I was very shy <laughs> and um, I didn't use Mandarin a lot I mean I spoke primarily English at home right and then like in school everyone thought that Mandarin was so uncool oh, yes. and then like well, when, when you start going to the wet markets you realize that you have to be adept at using Mandarin mm. you know if you're a Chinese person they'll automatically speak to you in Mandarin mm. right so yeah it's very interesting that that you have that kind of background so you know how to banter with them I suppose mm. it, it helped that I I was familiar with the the environment so I, I wasn't starting from scratch I think they would have been 
he restated if you ask a lot of uh, basic questions. Yeah. yeah. So I roughly know how things move around. And like the basic thing is not to visit them when they are busy. You you, you have to know mm. like which hours are like uh, when they when they take a break. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like reading the room, but a different kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. So after your work at Makan Sutra, you went and took up like a few different jobs. I, I found that very fascinating because you were working as a stagiaire at a Chinese-American restaurant and then an intern at a butcher shop. I mean, that is not the traditional like Singaporean path, right? Where it's very linear. Mm. So how did you, you mm. know, navigate all these twists and, and turns? That was when I was in uh, the States. So, so I went to study, right, after uh, Makan Sutra, I, I did a master's in food studies in Boston. So then um, after I finished my studies, I joined my husband in New York and I had half a year to go before we come back to Singapore. And um, I had time and I didn't want to waste it. Um, and I always think that as a food writer, even though I uh, was not planning to uh, work in the kitchen. I thought that I should at least experience what it's like to work in the kitchen in order to write about it, mm. right? Um, so that's how I decided to, uh, like, I offered my service uh, to a restaurant. Uh, I came across it by chance. I love their food. And I just wrote in to the chef and said, like, you know, can I work there? I mean, I, I don't have experience. I don't have any professional kitchen experience, but I cook at home, so I know how to hold a knife. <laughs> yeah. um, and so he, he invited me to, to work with them. I think um, it, it's quite easy to get a job in the kitchen in New York. Mm since they don't pay you anyway. Mm. So how was the experience like? I mean, your glimpse into um, the hospitality industry. It was interesting. I mean, I was, I was, my first day there, I was asked to weigh pasta into portions. I still remember about 170 to 180 grams, you know, the kind of attention to detail that, that I, I knew I didn't like about uh, kitchen work. <laughs> because, I mean, like, vegetables have to be of certain size yeah. and then you have to pluck them. I mean, I didn't, I didn't enjoy cooking that way, I must mm. say. I mean, I enjoyed cooking at home where I, can be aga-aga and, you know, close one eye about certain things, be a bit, you know, but you know what, you have to be so meticulous with each vegetable leaf and that got a bit frustrating, but I knew what I was, I, mean, I knew that it was not my restaurant, I would just, I would just follow instruction, I didn't have to think so hard about it, but if you were to ask me, yeah, I like cooking like that, that way, yeah. I didn't like it, yeah, yeah. but it was, it was, an eye-opening experience and the chef was very generous with his recipes mm. so like he would make a uh, uh, ricotta with tofu roux which is the fermented mm. tofu and he would yeah, it, it, the flavor was was great and then he would share the recipe with me and so i, I learned i learned quite a bit wow. that sounds amazing after that you did you come back to singapore and then you started working on your book on prison food culture uh, so i found out about um these um ex-inmates cooking in prisons and drug rehabilitation centers in the 70s and 80s back when back in 2011 even before i worked at makan sutra 
so there was a point of time when I was, uh, after I graduated, I freelanced for food magazines and I was building up my blog. So what I did hmm. was I co-called uh, Chef... Danny, right? Was it Danny? Yes, Chef Danny, yeah, because he was interviewed in the Straits Times uh, and he was talking about his past. So so I just, I co-called his restaurant. At that time, he only had one restaurant. Yeah. It was very easy to find him. I just co-called him. I co-called him and I said, oh, I'm so-and-so, you know, I'm interested to find out about what, what, what kind of food was served in prison. So he told me over the phone, I tell you something even better. I tell you about masak. Yeah. So that's how I found out about it, by being 16. Mm. And so I met up with him. He was very generous because even though I was only uh, preparing to like publish the story in my blog, mm. you know, not for any uh, mainstream um, like newspapers or magazines, but he was very generous with his time. He told me everything about Masa. At first, it was really very hard to wrap my head around all the concepts of like, you know, how to build a fire from scratch and all that. Um, yeah. So I, I wrote a very short story that didn't do the topic justice because mm. it was a very big topic. There were, there were a lot to explore. Uh, that was why uh, after I came back from the States, I decided to um, explore further, interview a few more people and then uh, write a book about it. Mm. Yeah. Why did you decide to publish it in like a book format? I mean, why not do like a series of blog posts? Was, were there any specific reasons why you chose to go with a book? Mm, I thought it was the best best format because there were many topics to explore. Um, I, I didn't think it would work if it was a series of uh, stories. Um, like, like I would mm. like to explore the different meanings of uh, food in the prisons and drug rehabilitation centre. I, I thought it would make more sense if it's compiled into a book. Um, and also, I wanted um, like pictures, like commission uh, photography to be done about the, 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 the dishes and the items that they produced. Um, because I, I think that it would be quite hard to visualise uh, their creativity uh, without photos. Mm. Yeah, which was why I, I commissioned um, a photographer, Don Wong, to recreate all these mm. things and take photographs of them. Yeah, I saw some of the photos and it's really wonderful and like really intriguing. <laughs> like the kind of things that you can cook in prison with such little resources. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the impetus for these inmates to attempt cooking when it's illegal to cook in prison, right? I mean, do you think that speaks to something that's very human in all of us? Food is a common source of joy for people. So I, I understand that it was it wasn't only in Singapore that the inmates uh, cooked illegally in their cells. It was all over the world, in the States mm. especially. There are a lot of uh, stories done about that. Um, so I think the, the common thing is why people of different culture in different countries uh, did the same thing when they lost their freedom, when they are locked up. It's because I think food is a common source of joy. Um, but the second reason is because food is readily available in prisons and drug rehabilitation centers. They wouldn't deprive you of uh, food, a basic necessity, right? As as opposed to other forms of like entertainment, like 
alcohol or movies mm. that wouldn't be available uh, in the prisons and drug rehabilitation centers. So um, since these were easily available, then they could exercise their creativity on uh, this item. So what were some of the dishes that they cooked? Uh, so they made laksa uh, with the, the noodles that, because every Wednesday they got fried noodles um, and they got sick of the fried noodles that was prepared. So they saved a portion of the noodles and then they used reconstituted milk and uh, canned heavy hyang that they could buy from the commissary. So then they mixed them up, maybe throw in a little bit of taokwa that they, they, they got every day. Yeah, uh, so that's one dish. Uh, they made like since Chinese New Year is coming maybe I mentioned that they made this uh, peanut candy uh, they bought they oh. bought you know like camel packet peanuts from the commissary and then they mm. used a broom to crush it and then mixed it with margarine and sugar I think and then stole the um, apparently the, the Chinese chest in the day room was hollow at the back it was a plastic uh, chest piece it was hollow at the back, so they used it as a mold uh, to mold the, 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 the peanut mixture that they made. Yeah, yeah. and then they knock it out. So that's good. Wow. So they don't always use um, fire. It's not really like fire cooking all the time. They made like uh, pickled fruit as well. Yeah, because some of the facilities, they had like roadside trees and the yeah. fruit would fall into the yard and then they would pick up the mangoes and then pickle it. Yeah. Do you think, um, you know, creating all these foods were a matter of like recreating familiar tastes and flavors to them when they were outside of prison? Or do you think um, it was something like they needed that kind of mental stimulation to exercise their creativity? Or do you think it was like all of the above? Um, when I asked, the interesting thing is when I asked them if they were trying to recreate familiar food, they said no. But most of the recipes they shared with me um, were actually hawker food or food that are available outside. So, so I think it wasn't their intention to try to recreate uh, familiar mm. food, but um, they just wanted something. Firstly, the reason why they must is they wanted something hot to eat because prison meals were always served cold. Um, mm. um, they they had to prepare the meals much earlier, you know, because of logistical issues and the delivery takes quite a while. Uh, they just really wanted something hot. And when they tried to cook, they cooked something that they had eaten before, I guess. That's natural. You wouldn't try to cook, like, something altogether new to you. Uh, so it was by chance that they, they, they created things like laksa and banyan and uh, peanut candy. I find it very amazing that they managed to cook such like elaborate sounding things mm-hmm. secretly. Like, did they tell you what the process was to do it, you know, in secret? To be honest, uh, actually the warders knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, but remember that that was in the 70s and 80s. So a few things going on there. Um, there was a short of stuff in the drug rehabilitation centers back in the 70s. Uh, so, um, and they were familiar with um, the patrol hours, right? So they would do it not in the face of the, the warders. So they would, they would time it after the last master check, which is the last hate count after dinner, and they locked mm-hmm. up all the gates, right? And then 
um, that's around seven o'clock and nine o'clock is lights out. So they would mask up between that 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 time. Mm. And uh there would be no waters patrolling during that time. Yeah. So 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 they would cook very quickly and then they would clean up. Uh and they would also, you know, like they would see who's patrolling that day. If uh it's someone who they know is quite lenient, they would mask up. But you know, they say this one will catch one, then they would not mask up. And how did you start the fire? Uh ah, okay. In the prison, they used to be allowed to smoke, so they mm-hmm. had matches there. Um, mm-hmm. but if you were in a drug rehabilitation center, then then you would have to use like a flint that is found in um. It's a little metal piece found in the lighter and then they would strike it with a razor blade that they used to shave. They were supposed to surrender it after they were done shaving, but you know, they, they hide it, they hid it. Or mm. they use a pen knife that they stole from the workshop to create a spark. Then they stole a uh, cotton ball from the clinic and then they aimed the spark at the cotton ball to, to then the, the cotton ball would, would catch fire. And then that fire they use it to char a piece of cloth that they cut out from the t-shirt so that would be their black coal that they then tear every time they they need a small piece and then they would then again use the flint and the, the razor blade create a spark aim at that piece of coal and then that's their fire they don't need the adapter that they don't need the cotton ball anymore so it's a very mm. elaborate process a bit stone-like and then yeah then they have to create their own fuel like they would like break break the plastic trays and then melt it down to make a candle and then that is their little stove then that they light up Uh, the the wig is um made of t-shirt or their socks yeah i really feel like stories like that is like they are like testament to the human spirit, right? Like what humans can actually do. Yeah, when you're severely deprived, yeah. right? No, not just deprived, but I mean like when you have constraints placed upon you, then like you really yeah. um, see the true nature of humans, which is that, you know, we are inherently creative beings, right? Like I feel that now with, yeah. you know, in this era of um, abundance, we kind of have lost this culinary ingenuity, right? So when you were recreating these dishes at home, um, what did you feel? I mean, when you were cooking them and tasting them, did you have any thoughts? Oh, I didn't. I didn't uh, recreate them. Don did. Oh. I didn't get to because he did it uh, during circuit breaker, so we couldn't meet. Oh. Well, I mean, we did meet outside, and then he showed me his the photos, yeah. and then I told him what what what's yeah. wrong about these. Oh, they didn't use this ingredient, so we shouldn't put that in. Yeah. So I, I gave mm. him my input, but he was the one who did the shopping, tried to find similar wow. looking like colours and cloth, you know, to recreate the items that the ex inmates did. Okay, th- this is what the 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 inmates that I mean, my interviewees told me. Like they some of them actually tried creating the things that the food that they did after they were released. Oh, but why would you do that? No, so they in they remembered it to be wonderful. They remembered those dishes to be wonderful, right? So they thought that oh, I want to prepare it for my family today, right? 
So, so yeah. there was this, I call it mixed stew because they simply threw everything that was available to them into that pot of soup. It was a lot of canned food, uh, canned pig trotters, yam thai, you know, they threw mm. everything in, tau kwa. So, so my interviewee did the same. He even threw in abalone and, you know, like to jazz it up. And then nobody could eat it because it was so salty. Because all the, the canned, uh, all the sauce in the canned food, he threw it in as he did when he was, he was in the drug rehabilitation center. So then, then, then he said that that made him realize that, I mean, it was, it was wonderful then because prison food was quite uh, bland. Yeah. Right. But when he came out, he realized that actually it wasn't that good. Yeah, and this was quite consistent. I mean, a lot of the other interviewees told me the same thing. I mean, why would I make the prison nasi lemak when there's Pongo nasi lemak outside? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So now, like, well, now that when you're out, maybe even Pongo nasi lemak isn't good enough for you. That's what exactly yeah. what one of them said. I think what you're saying reminds me of this episode that I did with um, Shen Tan. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Shen, she practices fasting, right? Mm-hmm. And so she was telling me that when you actually deprive yourself of dopamine for a while, like the next thing that you taste is like the best tasting thing in the world, right? And I was like, Hunger, oh, you know, Hunger is the best sauce. <laughs> yeah. Can I also ask why you decided to shine a spotlight on this um, side of Singaporean food culture. I think like to a lot of people, um, like this is something that feels irrelevant to, you know, daily living because it's like something that not every Singaporean experiences. So why did you feel like it was noteworthy or, you know, worthy enough to be published into a book? Food is merely an excuse for me to find out more about something bigger. Yeah, I thought mm. that this um, whole massage thing was very interesting because it it shows a different side of the inmates. Mm. In, yeah. in what sense? Like, did you feel like there was a stereotype? Or? There is. I mean, um, I wrote this in my book as well. I mean, our understanding of inmates is they are either um, repentant or they are incorrigible. It's, it's black and white, right? Yeah. But I, I think that the massage shows them to be a bit more multifaceted. Mm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it shows them to be loyal, but it shows them to be uh, ill-disciplined. It shows them to be angry, but funny as well. Uh, mm. So that's why I want to... I mean, I, I learned something from um, trying to understand massage. And mm. I, I simply wanted to tell that story and that's it i love that um so when you were talking and interviewing these inmates um like did that aspect of them come through like i mean because they were telling you about things that you were not witness to right so Mm -hmm. did that side of their personality come through in their recounting Mm, yes it did i i think every time i interviewed them uh, I would ask myself what surprised me, and like for example, when I shared with my husband, oh, you know, this guy he told me this and that, and I, and I, and I found that surprising. Uh, and then I would think to myself, why was I surprised? Is it because I had a, a preconceived, yeah, a preconceived notion of who they are, what they were like, you know? And then I would catch that and make sure that I would capture that in the story that I write about them. 
I can't, I can't remember what exactly it was, but why was this particular information so surprising to me? And I would mm. investigate that and make sure to deliver that in, in the story that I write, yeah. Mm. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah, yeah. Um, your whole career has been you following your own passions, right? Like, and your curiosities, like what you're curious mm. about. Do you see this as, a sustainable way of living i mean like for example with publishing a book right like say the prison book what some people would do is that they'll test for like market demand and see whether people would be keen to to purchase such a book Mm. before working on it but i think for you what, what i found very fascinating is that you actually like just went ahead with it, not knowing what like how people would respond to such a unorthodox subject or you know topic. Yeah, so I mean, I was just curious about how how can it be like sustainable what you're doing. We get asked that question a lot. Okay, so first thing uh, is that my husband showed me that it is possible to start our own company. Okay, basically, we graduated in 2009. It was the subprime mortgage crisis. No one was hiring. And he happened to be offered a freelance job. Mm. And somehow he managed to survive. So he has never been employed until today. So whereas I got myself a job at a tour agency and then I quit my job, I did some freelancing. I I also um, mm. did... Um, petrochemicals reporting, uh, they pay very well. But I mm. couldn't care about the numbers, whether the cost of ethanol has gone up by one cent or two cents that day. I I mean, having tried that, I knew very well that I wouldn't enjoy it even though it pays well. That's how I uh, mm. decided that. And then, then right after that, I joined Makan Sutra basically. So, mm. so from those experiences, I know very well mm. that what I know very well what makes me happy. It's food writing, right? But of course, doing you know, if I were to do the kind of mm. stories that I do, I, I mean, I don't fit into the mainstream magazines or newspapers, right? Uh, Marcus Sutra did give me the luxury to because we had a partnership with Yahoo, so I could write a lot of like mm. I could propose stories that I was interested to find out more about. And I could write about them. So so that was good. Um, but I want to be out on my own. I wanted to find out more uh, like other ways I could other ways I could uh, interpret food, food culture. That's why I went to study because I had a lot of interest. Like the, the prison story, for example. Um, I didn't know how to um, analyze the information that I have. That's why I wanted to study. I had um interest in home economics history in Singapore as well, even before I went to study. But mm-hmm. I didn't know how to approach it. That, that that was the main reason why I wanted to go to study, because I was ill-equipped to um, write those stories. Um, and coming back, my husband basically continued doing what he was doing, and I joined him. He already had some clients who... Uh, were familiar with him and then we got jobs and and we agreed that uh, the kind of topics, the kind of interests that we have uh, are not going to be sustainable, are not going to pay the bills. So what we did was we basically uh, do editorial work, we write 
stories for government agency, we do books for private companies, you know, we did this kind of things to pay for the to pay for the projects that we really like to do. Mm, I think that's such a good way to think about it. I mean, we have, we have, we met people who did similar stuff as well, so mm. so we learned from them that you know there is you you don't have to think about it in like binary terms. Either you you do what you hate and 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 it pays you well, or you do what you like and then become a pauper. <laughs> you don't you don't have to choose between the two, you know. But of course, I must say that we were lucky also. Like, you know, my, my husband had already been um, freelancing. I mean, he registered a company as well, so he owns a company. Um, and then he's been doing well. So we were quite confident that we could make it work. It, it was not as if I graduated and then I planned, I planned it so well and then everything just fell into place. It, it wasn't like that at all. It was really very difficult deciding whether I, I remember back then in twenty twelve twenty thirteen it was very difficult to decide whether I want to be a food writer or to continue um petrochemical reporting mm. because the the salary was a very big difference mm. yeah and and I had to pay my student loan then as well so how do you decide on food writing being your eventual career i I guess how I felt while writing while reporting petrochemical uh, prices and how I felt when I was talking to hawkers and writing about stories was just the difference was just too obvious to me Mm. and uh, and I I thought that it would be easier to make it work if I enjoy what I'm doing it might take me a little longer to get comfortable in life but I think the process wouldn't be too painful if I was doing what I like yeah Mm, yeah and that's very interesting because I was um I was reading your blog and you know there are really meaty articles you know like almost like deep dives into specific subjects I think I read your article on toddy and I was like (laughs) wow it's like very long and very like well researched and I think it's really wonderful to see you actually breaking the mold and finding what keeps you happy but also is sustainable in its own way mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, I mm-hmm. if I were a runner, I would definitely not be a sprinter. I'm a marathon runner. I mean, I don't run at all. I have no stamina. But if I were to be a runner, uh, I would be a marathon runner. So like the Singapore noodles story, right? There, there are actually many, there have been many articles written about mm-hmm. Singapore noodles. And I would always be very curious. Did I miss out anything that these writers actually found out? But I didn't. I get very nervous, right? Then I read and I realize that these writers, because they work for magazines, right? They don't have the luxury that I do to take my own sweet time uh, to research about one dish. So their articles would never be as rich mm. as mine or as in-depth as mine mm. because they really do not have, like they have, they have deadlines that I do not have. But it's not sustainable, <laughs> I have to say. Like, to, to take one whole day to research about something so small that doesn't even give you any answer about a dish, yeah. But I completely empathise with you, I mean, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to reach out to you to have this chat. Because I see a lot of parallels between 
your life and your interests and my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I saw a lot of similarities. And then now I'm in this phase that is like almost very similar to what you're doing with this, which is a lot of research about food. And I can also spend like an entire day researching about like one thing just because it eats my passion and mm-hmm. my interest. Mm-hmm. I guess why I asked you the about the sustainable question is because, you know, like the thing is, I'm not sure if it's information that people really need. You know what I mean? It's like, Mm. Good to know. Mm. Good to know that there's a history, but mm. I mean, um, yes. you know, yes, would I, people crave that kind of um, content? I, I get what you mean. I, I guess this is a question that I've been thinking about as well, and it may be the reason why I have lost a bit of uh, my curiosity about truth. Uh, I, I don't blame COVID entirely. I think it's partly because I haven't found the answer to that question. Like, is it really important? What am I doing this for? Like hmm. uh, the things that I'm curious about, um, I guess, which is why in in, in the past, um, my my research has has mostly been about bowl. Hmm. I always thought that is is my my food stories are actually about people. Then it's easier to convince myself why these stories are important because it's about people, right? So when it comes to but topics that are less about people or it's just to feed my curiosity about. No, actually, now that, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot right now, actually every story is about people. Yeah, in some way. When when it's about food, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that, that's something that we could remind ourselves. Yeah. Like, for example, you know, like, things like toddy. It's, like, something that is so obscure. It's, like, people in Singapore don't even think about toddy. But you would take, mm. like, I don't know how long you took to, to write that article. But, I mean, you definitely took a lot of time and effort to do that research and to put it all into a, you know, cohesive and eloquent piece of writing, right? Uh, the researching is always the fun part for me. Yeah. What's, ag- what's agonizing is the writing. Mm. <laughs> Uh, I always find writing difficult, although it's been my job, but I always find writing very difficult. But it, but it's a very important process to make sure that I actually understand what I think I understood. Mm. Yeah, um, that, that process is very important for me. Um, but researching is really, really very fun. Like then you will come across information that yeah. is totally unimportant, but could be quite funny as well. You know, I never like history as a student. I hate history, but it was only through working on Singapore noodles and finding out about like the the context, cultural context behind certain dishes that makes me feel like I want to know more about history. Yes. You know, because everyone connected in a way. Yes. Like food is not static, it doesn't belong to a single country. Yes. And then like when you trace the origins and the pathways, it's very, very fascinating. Mm. Being in this food writing space do you feel that there are any areas of food writing or in the singaporean food space that um has been overlooked uh, one thing that i i did notice about um the food media in singapore is that um it is um heavily it is dominated by the chinese uh mm. food writers so so, yeah. so then we are seeing things from um, the eyes of the Chinese. Um, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I face challenges as well as a uh, ethnic Chinese 
food researcher is that whenever I try to find out more about uh, a Malay dish, for example, because of my inability to read Malay, I'm restricted mm. to um, English newspapers, for example, or, or English language resources. And I'm, I'm well aware yeah. that, that then I would only be seeing things from uh, an English-speaking person's perspective. Um, especially yes. if you were to go far back to like maybe the early 1900s and the Straits Times were like by written by your uh, European writers, right? Uh, um, so 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 that was the challenge that I faced, and then I therefore wonder about then then, then isn't that a problem? Is your your mainstream newspapers, your all the food writers are Chinese? <laughs> I understand what you mean. Like it's kind of like even if the Chinese person was well-meaning, um, he or she would be locked out of a culture mm-hmm. or a sense of food appreciation that can only be there if you are belonging to the ethnic group, right? Yeah, or at least if you are well versed in the language, then you would have access to a very different set of information or opinion. Mm-hmm. I I I can read uh. Chinese. So it helps a lot. Mm. I, I find that like when I was researching um, Singapore noodles, for example, I could read up the Chinese papers and um, they would tell me things that the English newspapers wouldn't tell me. I would, okay, regardless of what ethnicity you are, I just feel that it's not enough to be only, uh, to, to master only one language. Yeah, considering, considering how intertwined our food cultures are, mm. If you are, if you know only, if you understand only English or Mandarin alone, then then you would be locked out of locked out from a whole lot of other information that is available out there. You are you are seeing things from a very very small narrow angle. Yeah, and I think it's a very humbling process for a Chinese person also, um, to really realize that there's so much that you don't know. Yeah, like. I didn't realize how much I didn't know until I started working on Singapore noodles. I mean, in the past, when you're growing up in Singapore, I was like, you know, it's so funny that this perspective that I grew up, mm. Um, mm. About, you know, this notion of Singaporean food, it's very like, oh, what is Singaporean food? It's uh, chicken rice, nasi lemak, um, mie rebus, you mm. know what I mean? Mm. But like, when you dig deeper, there's actually so much that is not shared about, so much that is not talked about, so much that... Um, it's not represented fairly in the media. So, yeah, I think it's a long road and it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint like what mm-hmm. you said. Yeah, I, I, I get asked the question, what is Singapore food a lot? And I always like struggle to... So if you talk about like chicken rice, then not everyone eats chicken rice. When I was younger, I'm not sure if you remember that there were Muslim chicken rice stores and their chicken rice is a little bit different from a Chinese, Hainanese chicken rice. So, so that got me thinking, you know, when we, when we, when we talk about oh, how chicken rice represents uh, Singaporean, Singapore food, but then my question is, what kind of chicken rice are you talking about? Uh, or Hokkien mee, mm. it doesn't really represent, like, it, these are food that uh, certain, certain communities actually don't, don't, don't take at all. And, and then we also, like, leave out things like, I mean, these are food that have, we have been eating for decades, but how about the, the food that represents our new immigrants? They are not included at all. How come Malang Sangko is not 
Singapore food. Yeah. <laughs> they are so popular now. Mm-hmm. It's very glaring. It's very glaring that uh, that this uh, there are certain communities that are like excluded in the in the representation of what Singapore food is. Yeah, I think that just leaves space for both of us to you know to explore in our own works, lah. And I think it's a very meaningful, and I'm very excited to read your future articles. I like <laughs> to follow your work. Thank you so much for reading my work. Sometimes I re- update my blog, and I wonder who's reading it. Especially when I started earlier. Now I know there are people reading it, but when I first started it ten years ago, uh, never mind. I'll just write. Yeah, you should. But yeah, I'm so happy that we got to finally meet. Okay, virtually meet and and chat. Yeah, it's been so lovely. And um, yeah, I hope that we stay stay in touch. Yes, yes, yes. Please do. I I love talking to you. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Sherry Ong, who is the author of When Cooking Was a Crime and co-founder of In Plain Words. Chinese New Year is around the corner, and if you are looking forward to making your own pineapple tarts this year, you can get a step-by-step guide if you sign up to our newsletter at sgpnoodles.substack.com. That is S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast, and I'll catch you next week.